We've called this series Representing Jesus uh, because we all have notions about who Christ is. And those ideas are shaped by our experiences, our worldview, pop culture, uh, stereotypes, family backgrounds, perhaps even our political preferences. Um, And sometimes what happens is our view of Christ drifts away uh, from what we find in the New Testament, which ends up affecting our relationship with God because we misunderstand who it is that we are in relationship with. Um, And if you don't believe in God, or you're just kind of exploring this Christianity thing, uh, it's possible you have a distorted portrait in your mind of who Jesus is. And so you might be pursuing someone or running away from someone uh, who is not actually Jesus, but rather a Jesus-esque fabrication. And um, it's just so important for us to consistently and prayerfully come to Scripture to recalibrate our view of who Jesus is, to remind ourselves of what he actually said, what he actually did, what he's actually like and what he's about and the shape he wants our lives to take. So in this series, John is our guide, uh, showing us the ways to align our view of Jesus with who he actually is. And John was one of Jesus's closest friends. Um, He was one of the 12 disciples, but even within the 12 disciples, John seems to have been especially close to Jesus. I think the most powerful example of this is that when Jesus was on the cross, he looked down to John, by the way, John, the only disciple of his who was there, he looked down to John and he asked him to take care of his mother Mary after he was gone. Um, so John is a very reliable source for us of seeing Jesus as he actually is. And today uh, we're going to read about a moment when, uh, uh, in Jesus' life when he was approached by a man named Nicodemus and had a conversation with him. This guy Nicodemus had a lot of questions about Christ, some false assumptions. He had misjudged Jesus, uh, but he also had not written him off. And uh, by the end of the Gospel of John, we see that God led Nicodemus through uh, an incredible journey of faith. Um, And this dialogue we're going to look at between Jesus and Nicodemus, it's going to show us who Jesus is, what his mission was about, how we should follow him, and how it looks to approach God, even with our own questions, our own doubts, our own fears and apprehensions. So turn with me, if you have your Bible, to John 3, 1. If you're not familiar with the layout of Scripture, uh, the Gospel of John is the fourth book in the New Testament. And uh, by the way, on your tables, we have Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one of those. We would love for you to take that home. That is yours. We also have message note cards in the basket and highlighters pens. Uh, Feel free to take notes and follow along. So we're going to start in John 3.1. But before we get into that, I want to back up just a couple of verses to give us uh, some context for what we're going to read. So John 23, uh, I'm sorry, 2, 23 to 25. So I'm going to read this. Uh, It says, now, while he, that's Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Okay. Um, Through the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, we see that Jesus' public ministry changed over time. Um, In the early days, he was teaching people, he was beginning to do miraculous healings and things like that, but he he actually tried to slow down the process of word getting out. Um, He was like a little guarded. He would do things like heal somebody and then say, hey, don't tell anybody about it. Keep it to yourself, which seems a little counterintuitive, right? I mean, he came to earth as the Savior. He's there to share the gospel. Why is he telling people, 
to be quiet? Well, it's because he knew that the powers that be, the religious authorities, the civil authorities, uh, were not going to enjoy his message. They were not going to be supportive of his message, and eventually they would try to stop him. Um, and so he wanted to have a chance to interact with as many people as possible, share, Christ, share the gospel with as many people as possible before the authorities inevitably stepped in and stopped him. Um, so we see Jesus kind of trying to minimize the frenzy a little bit early on in his ministry. You might imagine Jesus' ministry is like a, a boiling pot of water. Like early on, he's teaching, he's doing some healings, but like little bubbles are starting to form at the bottom of the pot. And then he continues on, and more and more people become aware of him. More bubbles, more steam, and finally it just comes to this full boil. Thousands of people know who Jesus is. They've seen him perform these miracles in public culminating in Jesus standing in front of both the religious and civil authorities who have the power to take his life and declaring openly who he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Kings. And that is when it boiled over, and they, which led to his crucifixion. But in this part of the Gospel of John, this conversation with Nicodemus we're going to look at, it's kind of in the early part of his ministry when uh, he's still a little bit more guarded, and that's kind of what we were reading here. He, he, he sort of, he was, he was out there sharing his message, healing, but he was still a little bit of an enigma to a lot of people. And, and then Nicodemus approaches him. He wants to find out what's going on with this Jesus guy. Um, so I want to get into it. Let me just pray briefly before we do. Lord Jesus, I pray now that you would open our hearts and minds Holy Spirit, would you change us by what we're going to discover in this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus? You know each one of us intimately. You know what is on our heart, on our mind when we came in here today. You know the ways we need to change, the ways we need to be encouraged. So Spirit, would you move in this time and allow us to leave changed uh, and encouraged in the ways that you want us to. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, John 3, starting verse 1, it says this. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. So let's stop there for a second. Um, The first thing we learn about Nicodemus is that he's a Pharisee. So if you're taking notes, highlight that word, Pharisee. Um, Now, if you've read the New Testament, you know that the Pharisees, Uh, were a part of the religious leadership in Israel at the time, and generally they were opponents of Jesus. They they were not fans of his. So much so that the word Pharisee is almost used as a synonym for just person who doesn't like Jesus. Um, You know, today if a Christian is being mean or legalistic or judgmental, you know, they'll be slapped with the label Pharisee. Um, But the Pharisees in the time of Christ were not like these cardboard cutout carbon copies of each other, just anti-Jesus people. They were a real group of people, of individuals that had a certain perspective, uh, and they were in the community of faith. And what's really interesting is we can find out about the Pharisees outside the Bible. There was a historian who lived at the time of Christ. His name was Josephus, and he described the Pharisees. Look what he said. Josephus said this, There was a certain sect of men that were Jews who valued themselves highly, upon the exact skill they had in the law of their fathers, in other words, the Old Testament, and made men believe that they were highly favored by God. These are those who are called the sect of the Pharisees. While the Sadducees are able to persuade none but the rich and have not the populace favorable to them, the Pharisees have the multitude on their side. So that's really interesting. We learn a few things about these Pharisees. They were very proud 
of the fact that they knew the scriptures and they were experts in the Bible. They were biblically knowledgeable. They were publicly pious. And also, they were very popular. I mean, many people in Israel at the time of Jesus' ministry looked to them for leadership. And um, Nicodemus is one of them. And he approaches Jesus to have this conversation. It's interesting. It says he came to Jesus at night. Highlight that uh, in verse 2 there. He came to Jesus at night. Now, we don't exactly know why he came at night. Um, You know, it, it could be that he felt some shame coming to Jesus, like his, his colleagues, other Pharisees, would not approve of this, that he might be mocked. So there could be a fear thing about the fact that it was at night. It could also be that he just wanted to, you know, have a moment to talk when it's quiet and other people aren't around. We don't really know why he came at night, but either way, he clearly wanted to know more about Jesus, and so he showed up. And he calls Jesus rabbi, which was a term of respect, And he says this phrase, highlight this, we know you're a teacher who's come from God. We know you're a teacher who's come from God. Uh, We don't know who the we is, we know. It's possible Nicodemus had some of his own disciples around, or maybe there's a few other Pharisees who kind of feel the same way. Um, And he says, "We, we know you're this teacher who's come from God. But why... Why would Nicodemus, this member of the religious establishment who will overwhelmingly oppose Jesus, why would he believe that Jesus, this outsider from Galilee, comes from God? Like, why would he say that? Well, in the words of renowned Swedish theologians, Asa Bass, (laughs) he saw the sign. Yeah, I just made that joke, and I stand by it. Um, If you don't know who Asa Bass is, go look him up. You're welcome. Um, he saw the sign. We talked about this in, uh, in uh, the last couple of weeks, that the language of signs in John is the language of miracles. And they're always called signs uh, because they point somewhere, okay? They're, they're pointing somewhere. So, so these are miracles. Nicodemus is basically saying, we know you're from God because of these miracles we saw you do. That was the proof. Like, like God must be with you or something. Um, now, Nicodemus doesn't understand what all this means yet. He's just meeting Jesus for the first time. And so he says, we know you're from God. We saw the miracles. Look how Jesus responds. Verse 3, Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. So it's interesting to note what Jesus did not do. Uh, You know, Nicodemus started this conversation about miracles. Like, hey, we know you're from God. You did these amazing miracles. And Jesus did not say, you're right. I am God. You see, that miracle is pretty awesome, right? I mean, that blind man who's now seeing that leper I cleansed, like, pretty awesome. Am I right? Like, he didn't go in. He didn't even engage on the subject of miracles. He wanted to talk about something else more important, which was being born again. Highlight those two words, born again. Now, it's interesting, Jesus had a very contradictory uh, attitude, it seemed, or it seems to us, not to him, uh, regarding his miracles. On the one hand, he consistently did miracles in order to prove who he was and his identity and his power, while simultaneously saying the miracles are not the most important thing. That's not even really the basis of this. Don't get hung up on the miracles. You can't know me simply by experiencing or or, or witnessing a demonstration of my power. That's not it. It's the relationship that really matters. And for that to be possible, you have to be born again. So 
Nicodemus, we're seeing already, he's kind of fumbling through this conversation. He, he, you know, he doesn't really understand what's going on. Um, he says to Jesus, you know, we know you're from God because of the miracles. So clearly he doesn't believe he's God yet. You know, he's just sort of, you know, God must be with you. But he, it's, he's still trying to figure all this out. Jesus tells him it's not really about the miracles, it's about being born again, which Nicodemus promptly mis- misunderstands and takes way too literally. What? How can someone be born again? So, so he's, he's not really following Jesus at this point. Look what Jesus says next in verse 5. Because Nicodemus just asked, how can somebody be you know, literally born again? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to the flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So Jesus is, is saying, like, I'm not talking about literal rebirth. So that's not what we're talking about. Spiritual rebirth. And he, he says, what, to be born again, you have to be born, I highlight this phrase, of water and the Spirit. Of water and the Spirit. That's, you know, what, what does that mean? It, it seems a little odd. But Jesus is not trying to be cryptic. He's not trying to be confusing or vague. Remember, Nicodemus is a, a biblical scholar, essentially. And Jesus is alluding to something from the Old Testament when he uses that language of water and spirit. It's like a movie quote. You know, like if I just like sprinkled the phrase use the force in a conversation, like uh, pretty much everyone would be like, that's Star Wars, right? Or that's a familiar phrase. So, so that water and spirit language would have just jumped out at Nicodemus as being from the Old Testament. And it's, it, most scholars think Jesus was alluding to this beautiful Old Testament text in Ezekiel that talks about God's cleansing work through the Holy Spirit. Um, So I want to look at that just for a second. Notice the language of water and spirit. This is what Jesus had in mind when he said you have to be born of water and spirit. Listen to this beautiful uh, passage. This is God speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Isn't that incredible? I mean, this is new birth. This is the spirit of God indwelling us, breathing new life into us, moving us to follow him. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says born of water and spirit. It's spiritual transformation. And it's also in this passage that Jesus, when he was talking with Nicodemus, there's also a clever wordplay here because he's talking about being born of water and the spirit. And then he says, you know, the wind blows. You don't know where it comes from and and all that language. Uh, It's it's he's being clever because in the in the Bible, there are two words for spirit. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The word for spirit in Hebrew is ruach. Everybody say that ruach. All right. Pretty good. And then the New Testament, which is Greek, the spirit word for spirit is panuma say that panuma right um those two words literally meant breath or wind those are those words mean so if you were a person in the ancient world and you spoke hebrew or greek and you were talking about your own breath or just the wind blowing outside you would use words that also mean the spirit 
It's the exact same word. And so sometimes in the Bible, those words refer to actual wind or breath, and sometimes they refer to the Holy Spirit himself. And usually in the English translations, it's a capital S for spirit when it's referring to the Spirit himself. And so Jesus is using those words in both ways here. He's saying you've got to be born of water and spirit. There's one use. And then he says, you know, the wind blow, it moves in, in ways we can't anticipate. We can't control it. We can't fully understand it. It's powerful. This is the Spirit's work blowing through our life. It's an amazing image. And if you feel like that's kind of hard to understand, uh, take comfort in the next verse, verse 9. Look at Nicodemus' response. How can this be? Uh, he doesn't understand. So he's struggling to follow too. Uh, uh, now let's read the next few verses. This is the, the last part of the dialogue here. Verse 10. Jesus says, You are Israel's teacher, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Okay. So Jesus is expressing some disappointment here in Nicodemus. He's a spiritual leader, and, and he's missed all of this. He's, all this, you know, being born again, water and spirit, he's missed all of it. He, he, Jesus feels that Nicodemus, you know, he, you, you know Ezekiel back and forwards, like, you should know this. You somehow missed this. Shouldn't be so dumbfounded by what I'm saying. That's kind of what Jesus is getting at. It does, it kind of sounds a little harsh, but Jesus always reserved his harshest criticism for spiritual leaders in that day because he felt they had led people astray through spiritual abuse or neglect. And, and, and he's saying to Nicodemus, look, <laughs> if you're not following me on like basic notions from the Old Testament, like how can I teach you everything new I'm here to do? You know, you're, how can you even learn? But, but Jesus doesn't give up on Nicodemus. He switches tactics here. And, and it, you know, the water and spirit thing, he didn't quite get. So he's going to go to another Old Testament passage. He knows Nicodemus will know. And this is when Jesus said, you know, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, and then highlight this if you're taking notes, the son of man must be lifted up. Um, the son of man was Jesus's term for himself. He's referring to himself. And um, we cannot understand, like if you're just reading John, and you read John 3.15, you know, those verses there, um, 14, and, and you just read past this snake in the wilderness thing, and you're like, oh, that's weird, and you move on. You will not understand what Jesus was saying. But you can flip back to the Old Testament and see what he was referring to. And what that was was there was a moment 1,500 years earlier when the Israelites are out in the desert. Moses is leading them through the desert on their way to the promised land. And these snakes, these venomous snakes, come into the camp and start biting people. And some Israelites have died. So Moses goes to God and says, I need help. What are we going to do? And this is what God says in the book of Numbers 21. This is what Jesus is alluding to. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. So, so it was a miracle that happened generations earlier. And Jesus was saying that moment foreshadowed 
me and my mission and what my life is going to look like. In the same way, Jesus was saying the snake was lifted up on a pole in the desert and people could look at that snake and find life and be rescued. In the same way, Jesus will be lifted up, crucified, put on a pole, and those who look at him will find life and find rescue. It was a, a powerful image and Nicodemus would have understood that. Now, with that statement there, that, that Jesus making the reference to that, that's where the conversation ends. So if you're, if you're looking in your Bible closely, you'll see the quotation marks end there. Or if you have a red letter edition, the red letters usually stop there. Um, that's the end of the dialogue. Uh, Nicodemus had approached Jesus because of his miracles. He misunderstood the metaphor of being born again. Jesus clarified he's talking about spiritual rebirth. Nicodemus still doesn't get it. Jesus explained his mission now through this Old Testament image of the snake being lifted up. And, and that's where the dialogue ends. And now John, the author, takes back over for the most famous verse in the whole Bible. John 3.16. John, the author, takes back over. He's no longer describing the dialogue. He takes over, and in the next two verses, to the most famous in the Bible, they represent John's follow-up comment, summary uh, statement about Jesus' exchange with Nicodemus. And it says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I want you to highlight a word in John 3.16. It's the third word, so. Highlight so. God so loved the world. Uh, That does not mean um, God loved the world so much, uh, though that, of course, is true. But in this verse, the translation of so isn't that. The Greek word translated as so um, means in this way. That's what the word means. And sometimes we use the word so like that in English, like if we say, uh, do it like so, or, you know, it remains so. It's kind of an outdated use of it. But it's an important distinction because John is not telling us how much God loved us. He's telling us the way God loved us, the manner in which God loved us, the way he proved his love for us was to give his one and only son. So you could more literally translate John 3.16, God loved the world in this way. He gave his son to save us. This is the way. God didn't just feel nebulous feelings of love for us, warm, fuzzy feelings. No, he actually demonstrated his love for us by sending Christ to rescue us. And his rescue mission was not one to condemn the world. His mission was to save the world, to offer eternal life. Like the snake raised up on a pole in the desert, looking to it for life, he too would be raised up on the cross, and anybody who looks to him for life will find it. And in another sense, I believe, he was also raised up, exalted after his resurrection. It's a very powerful image. So let's step back for a minute and talk about what all this means. Application for our lives. I want to share four kind of key ideas that I think come out of John 3. Um, the first is this. When approaching God, clumsy is okay. Clumsy is okay. You know, Nicodemus, like I said, he fumbled his way through this conversation, uh, and he's like a biblical scholar. Um, he did not understand who Jesus was. Uh, he, he, he wasn't sure what the message was. Um, 
But what mattered most is that he drew near to Christ with his questions, is that he actually showed up. And in the same way, wherever you are with God, look, we all come in here in different places with the Lord. Wherever you are, the main thing is to draw near. Sometimes we have this feeling like I got to get my act together and, you know, cross all these T's and and sort of, you know, have like a two-week track record of not, you know, sinning. And then maybe I'll talk to God. No, wherever you are with God, the main thing is to draw near. If you feel unworthy, do not let that be a barrier. If you're skeptical, about Jesus, don't let that be a barrier. If you think you have all the answers, don't let that be a barrier because I believe you'll come to him and find you don't have all the answers. Or maybe you've even been asking the wrong questions. Seek him out like Nicodemus did. You will find life because God is not interested in you performing for him. He is interested in you. He's interested in you. Clumsy is okay. Wounded, okay. Weary, Okay, Jesus said, if you are weary, come to me. I will give you rest. Doubtful is okay. Depressed is okay. Angry, okay. Come to Jesus, find rest, find life in him. Clumsy is okay. Number two, the relationship is what counts. The relationship is what counts. This is what Jesus meant by being born again. You know, Nicodemus came sort of preoccupied with Jesus' power, which means he was hung up on what Jesus might be able to do for him. He wasn't using relationship language. And like I said, in the Gospel of John, it always talks about miracles as signs. The signs themselves are not to be worshipped or, or you know, fawned over. They point to something else. They point to the one who is worthy of our worship and devotion, Jesus. The miracles are not the end. They're pointers. And Jesus told him, you must be born of water and spirit, born again, a new life. It's all based on relationship with Jesus. Jesus isn't meant to be just a curiosity. And Jesus is not just a source of power for us in our life to accomplish our agendas. He is a person. He is God himself who has invited us into an ever-deepening relationship with him. It's the relationship that matters. Number three, the Spirit transforms us and moves us. The Spirit transforms us and moves us. This is what Jesus wanted Nicodemus to grasp. God gives us his Spirit, which transforms our hearts. This is, I love the language in Ezekiel. This is what Jesus was referring to. The Spirit transforms our hearts from stone to flesh, from death to life. And his spirit, just like the blowing wind, moves us to follow him. It's the wind in our sails. That is how the spirit works. We cannot, friends, hear me. We cannot transform ourselves. We cannot. We cannot behave our way toward a vibrant relationship with Christ or achieve godliness in our own strength to, out of some desire to sort of make ourselves presentable to God. That is not how it works. It's not about you being presentable. It is about this transforming work of the Spirit inside of us, transforming us, new birth, born again from the inside out. That's what Jesus desperately wanted Nicodemus and us to grasp. Number four, God initiates our relationship with him. God initiates it. I think this is the secret of the passage in John 3 with Nicodemus. It's kind of hiding in plain sight. Nicodemus, he approached Jesus, yes, Um, But he actually didn't initiate their relationship. Jesus did. By coming to earth in the first place. 
by becoming one of us, by making himself known and knowable. You know, Nicodemus was able to speak words that would be heard by Jesus' human ears, and he was able to hear words that God spoke through Jesus' human mouth. And that was all possible because Jesus had already become human. However we approach God, it is always a response to the proactive love that God has already shown us. Remember John 3.16, God shows us his love in this way, that he sent his one and only son. So the fact that Jesus was even there to have this dialogue with Nicodemus is a profound expression of love for that man and for all of us. And I love in 1 John, so the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John wrote some letters at the end of the New Testament. In 1 John, there's this great statement, 1 John 4.10. I think it really summarizes this. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He loved us first. He loved us first. So I just want to wrap up with kind of a little bit of an epilogue, you know, kind of what happened in Nicodemus. Um, It seems, from what we can tell later in the Gospel of John, that this was a profound moment in his life, this dialogue with Jesus, that he heard what Jesus was saying, and uh, he responded to the grace that was offered him. Um, And I think it's so powerful to know this, because in Jesus' mind, the people who were farthest from him were the religious elite. Not the people who, you know, were sort of the uh, immoral types in the society. They, they needed him too. But the people he felt whose hearts were the hardest and were farthest away were the religious establishment. And those are, were his fiercest opponents. And the fact that Nicodemus came around to where he did with Christ is, is um, an amazing proof that nobody is ever too far. Nobody is ever too far from God's grace. And so when we read through the rest of the Gospel of John, we see the, the wind of the Spirit seems to have begun to blow in Nicodemus' life and that his heart had moved from stone to flesh. In chapter 7, when things are beginning to boil in uh, Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees as a group are clamoring for Jesus' arrest. Nicodemus sticks his neck out and defends Jesus. And for that, he is mocked by his fellow Pharisees. And then, I think in the most powerful moment, in John 19, we see that after Jesus died on the cross, Nicodemus and another man named Joseph went at great risk to Pontius Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Now, typically, the Romans left victims of crucifixion to rot. Nicodemus wouldn't let that happen. We are told that Nicodemus brought spices and oils that would have cost a fortune in order to clean and prepare Jesus' body for burial. He physically cared for Jesus' broken body. This was costly. It was very sad. And on top of that, according to Jewish law, remember Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He knows every line of the Old Testament law. Handling a dead body made you unclean for a period. So Nicodemus' friends, neighbors, colleagues, they would have all avoided him after this. Not to mention that any relationship with Jesus at this time is sort of radioactive. Nobody wanted to be near Jesus at this moment right after his death. Most of his disciples weren't anywhere around. They were scared. They abandoned him, except for John, who was there, and Nicodemus and a few others. 
This was financially, spiritually, and socially costly what Nicodemus did. It was a beautiful act. Nicodemus had moved from curiosity about Jesus to defending him to paying a very steep cost to care for him when nobody else would. And this is God's transforming power at work in Nicodemus. And that same power, my friends, is at work in any of you who draw near to Christ. So if you're afraid to approach God, it is okay. Be clumsy about it. But just approach. Draw near. If your relationship with God consists of you just sort of asking for God's help to pursue your agenda, pursue Him instead for Him. Not what He can do for you. For Him. Because that's how He feels about you. He's not looking to his relationship with you for you that he needs to get something from you. He just wants you. And we, ha- we are invited to view God the same way, that we can pursue him for him, not for what he can do for us, not for the ways he can make our life better. He does make our life better and richer and more meaningful, but we pursue him for him. That's the invitation that's there. And if you're striving so hard to be moral or holy or make yourself presentable to God, What Jesus said to Nicodemus applies to us. Rely on the Spirit. Turn to Him and say, I want to grow. I want to know you. I need to be transformed. I cannot transform myself. And if you're trying to get God to notice you, remember, He loved you first. Before you were born, He made you. Do you think He's going to forget about you? God loved you in this way. He sent His Son to die for you. He gave His life for you. Look to him and find life.